I uh, have been encouraging most of us to read along as we come week by week to these books, uh, but I, I didn't have the heart to urge you to read the book of Psalms today. There are 150 of them, and it makes it one of the longest books of the, old, of the Bible. But uh, I hope many of you have read in this book from time to time, as this is one of the great books of the, of the whole uh, inspired record of Scripture. And I wonder if you discovered that this book is really five books in one, that it's, it's not just one book, but it divides very easily and very obviously into five different books. And each of these divisions is marked by a doxology. At the close of each section of the book of Psalms, you have a doxology. You'll find the first one at the close of Psalm 41, if you want to look at that. And you'll see that every other section, and I'll give you the others in a moment, end with this kind of a doxology. 41 ends, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. So that these books have been compiled and put together deliberately with a <coughs> specialized <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> purpose in view. Now, it's often been pointed out that the book of Psalms is the book of human emotions. Every experience of the heart of man is reflected in this book. I, I suppose that, like myself, you too are people of changing moods. And no matter what mood you may happen to be in, if you'll tell me what it is accurately and sincerely, I'll find you a psalm that will reflect that mood. For every one of the uh, emotions and experiences and moods of man are reflected in this amazing book. Some of us, I think, have discovered the secret of perpetual emotion. And uh, if such, we, we very much ought to get acquainted with the book of Psalms, because this is the book that expresses this for us. If you'd like a little help on this, for instance, uh, if you're afraid, I suggest you read Psalm 56, or Psalm 91, or Psalm 23. You know that one, of course. And if you're, in, if you're discouraged, read Psalm 42. There are a great many more that you could read, but I'm just picking out sample ones. If you happen to be feeling lonely, then I'd suggest Psalm 71 or Psalm 62. If you're oppressed with a sense of sinfulness, of deep sin, there are two marvelous psalms for that. Psalm 51, written after David's double sin of adultery and murder, and Psalm 32, which is a great expression. And then if you're worried or anxious, I'd recommend Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. Most of us would have that pretty well worn out by now if we knew that. If you're angry, try Psalm 58 or Psalm 13. If you're resentful, read Psalm 94 or Psalm 77. If you're happy and you want some words to say it in, <clears throat> try Psalm 92 or Psalm 66. If you feel forsaken, try Psalm 88. If you're grateful and you'd like to say it in, in expressive terms, read Psalm 40. 
if you're doubtful, if your faith is beginning to fail, read Psalm 119. And we could go on and on because all 150 Psalms have to do with experience. Now, I think most of us think of the Psalms as the product of David. And more than half of them were written by David, the sweet singer of Israel, who out of the varied experience of his varied life uh, was given the gift of God to capture these emotions and put them in beautiful lyric terms. And uh, they, are, they, they became the psalm book or the hymn book of Israel. Many of these psalms were written to be sung in public. And that's why you'll often find at the head of the psalm, to the chief choir master or to the choir master. And in some of our Bibles, we have the word maskil, which is simply the Hebrew word for psalm. You may be interested to know that one of the psalms was written by Moses, Psalm 90, and two of them by King Solomon. And others were written by a nameless group called the Sons of Korah, who were especially charged with leading the singing of Israel. And then there was a man named Asaph who wrote many of the Psalms, and even good King Hezekiah wrote ten of them. And if you want to, you can check these out, as most of the Psalms have a title given to it that does refer to the Maker in many cases. Now, the five books of Psalms that I've already mentioned follow the same divisions of the as the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. Those first five books, if you'll remember, in our survey through the scriptures, were uh, designed of God to give us the pattern of God's working in a human life, or in the whole of creation, or in the whole history of the world, if you like. And God always follows the same pattern when he works with an individual or with a nation. He takes them through the same steps. And those uh, five steps were reflected in their, uh, by divine inspiration in the first five books of the Bible. Now, the Psalms follow the same divisions reflecting the reaction of the human heart to the working and the pattern of God's working in man's life. So that you can see how the, I was trying to point out for you here in a moment, how these Psalms beautifully capture the same distinction of thought. For instance, the first book of Psalms, Psalm 1 through 41, is the equivalent of the book of Genesis and has essentially the same message. It's the cry of human need. It's the expression in beautiful poetic terms of the deepest need of the human heart. And you'll find, incidentally, that follows very closely the story of the book of Genesis. It begins with Psalm 1, the picture of the perfect man, man in his perfection, just as Genesis begins with man in the Garden of Eden. And in Psalm 2, you have man in his rebellion. Uh, you remember that psalm. It's a noted, notable psalm. It begins uh, with, the title, with the words, Why do the nations rage and the people uh, conspire together. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us cast their bands from us, and so on. It's the expression of man in his rebellion, just as you have in the Garden of Eden. 
And then in the third psalm, you have man in his rejection. And this traces right on through. The following psalms in that book introduce the grace of God. You have the same picture of God seeking man out in the darkness, in the shadows of the garden, crying out, Adam, where art thou? And moving to restore man to his lost estate. And as you trace through this book, you find that deep-seated expression of human of the human heart in its awareness of its separation from God, calling out to God in its need. Then the second book of Psalms, Psalm 42 through 72, answers to the book of Exodus in the Pentateuch, in the first five books. And here you have the experience of a new relationship. Just as Exodus tells us the story of Israel in Egypt in captivity, uh, learning the hardness of, and, the, and the awfulness of sin and the bondage and the slavery that comes from it, and then learning something of the grace of God in his delivering power and bringing them out of the slavery of Egypt. So you have in these psalms, psalms that trace the same account. In Psalm 45, you have the psalm of the king. God in his sovereign rule over man, and man's experience of God in that way. And in Psalm 46, God is a present help in time of trouble. Uh, the uh, promise of God's uh, delivering help. In Psalm 50, you have the strength of God exemplified. And Psalm 51, the delivering grace of God to man in his sin. And in Psalm 72, the last psalm of this book, you have a picture of God in his mighty conquering power, setting man free from the bondage in which sin has enslaved him. So this cat captures very carefully, you see, the thought of Exodus. Then the third book of Psalms, Psalm 73 through Psalm 89, answers to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the book of the tabernacle, of worship of what God is like when man comes before him and discovers what he himself is like in in the presence of God. And Leviticus is the book that takes us into the inner workings of man's heart. And we see his need, his deep consciousness of his own sin and the discovery of what God offers to do about it. And in these Psalms, 73 through 89, you have the same pattern carried out. Psalm 75, for instance, is a very ex exquisite expression of man's awareness of the inner judgment of God in the inner heart. And Psalm 78 is a record of God's unbending love. Although God loves man, he'll never let him get by with anything. He never compromises. He never bends and uh, gives in to man's pleading for for mercy, but God is absolutely relentless in cutting off sin and then dealing with man in love when he's ready to acknowledge that, to admit that, to, to agree with God in that respect. In Psalm 81, you have the new strength that God is offering to man. And in Psalm 84, a wonderful picture of the continuous provision that God offers to be. So this is the discovery of the new resource. In God, Then Psalm 90 through 106 is the fourth book, and this answers to the book of Numbers, the wilderness book, where you have the experience of human failure. And through this book, you'll find it alternating between times of victory, 
in times of very obvious defeat. Just as our experience follows that of Israel in the desert, God would step in and deliver them, work a mighty miracle, and minister to their needs, feed them from with bread from heaven, open the rock to them so the water would flow forth. And in the next chapter, you have Israel murmuring and complaining and falling into defeat. And that's the picture through this fourth book of Psalms. In the fifth book, 107, Psalm 107 through Psalm 150, you have that which equals answers to the book of Deuteronomy, the experience of the new resource in God. That is, here's the person who, having come to the end of himself, is now ready to lay hold of the fullness of God. And this book is just thanksgiving and praise from beginning to end. It's just one triumphant note right all the way through. And it ends in just psalm after psalm after psalm. In the closing part of it, nothing but hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's just someone so excited they can't do anything else but stand and shout hallelujah. That's all. And that's the way the book of Psalm closes. Now, that's the experience of man carried out as uh, man learns to understand God's workings and his pattern in his life. Now, perhaps it may be of interest to you to know that all these poetical books form a separate section of the Bible. We looked at the book of Job last week together, and now we look at Psalms, and next week Proverbs, and then follows Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. And these are the books of poetry. And Job we found to be the cry of the spirit of man, the deep cry of the need of man for faith, for trust in God, even though everything seems to go wrong and nothing is even explainable any longer. When suffering reaches such an intensity that it is no longer uh, of any particular obvious value, that it is senseless, then man's last resort is simply quiet faith, that's all. That's the cry of the spirit of man. Man was made to believe in God. But in Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, these three books you find joining together to express the the cry of the soul of man. And just as the soul has three divisions, uh, the emotions the mind, and the will. So these books express this. Psalms is the book of emotions. And uh, Proverbs is the book of the mind. And you notice it's made up of reasonings all the way through. While Ecclesiastes is the book of choice, the book of the will. The story of Solomon's search throughout the earth, examining all the philosophies of men and choosing among them that which is right and good. And here you have, then, the expression of the soul of man, and it all adds up to one great word, hope. Just as the cry of the spirit is faith, the cry of the soul is hope. And in the Song of Solomon, you have the cry of the body, essentially, which is one of love. Our deepest need, even physically, as men and women, is love. Children cannot grow up adequately and rightly unless they have love. And this is the the cry of the body, which is expressed in that most beautiful love poem ever written, the Song of Solomon. We'll come to that more uh, in detail as we come to these books one by one. 
Now, many, I think, have found difficulty in getting much out of the Psalms. Sometimes they read, people tell me they read through the Psalms, and it's all filled with David's cry against his enemies and uh, a record of handicaps and trials and various reactions. And some are very troubled by what are sometimes called the imprecatory psalms. Those psalms which seem to uh, speak with almost bitter and scorching terms against the enemies and to call God's wrath down upon them and seem to wish that the enemies be torn limb from limb and hung from the nearest lamppost. And people are disturbed by this. They say, what kind of writing is this? This doesn't agree with the New Testament that tells us to love our enemies and all. But I think we, we uh, can understand even these troubled psalms if we, will, if we will remember what the New Testament tells us about the Old Testament. That is that all these things, Paul says, were written down for our instruction. And that if we put ourselves in the place of the Psalms, into these Psalms, we will see that the enemies he's talking about here are the enemies we face. Not the people that are against us. They're not our real enemies. The New Testament tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I know we sometimes are confused that way. We think if somebody opposes us that he's our enemy. No, it's not that. It is the principles of evil, the philosophies of the world, the attitudes of the flesh that are our enemies. And our real enemies are those things within us. Remember, Jesus said, it's not that which goes into a man which defiles him, it's that which comes out of it. For out of the heart of man proceed evil faults and lies, and adulteries, and murders, and fornications, and all these other things. There's where your enemy is. And if you read those the Psalms like that, whenever you read enemy, you think of, uh, of those, uh, those temptations toward covetousness, or jealousy, or uh, pride, or ambition within yourself. And uh, think of that as the enemy that is spoken of in the Psalms. You can see that this, this severe language makes sense. We must deal severely with these things. They are, have no right to live in the heart of a Christian, in the life of a Christian. They have no right to be honored, and we must deal very severely with them. This is right in line with the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he told us, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, cast it from you. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it into the fire. Now, he doesn't mean to do that literally. He simply means deal with it absolutely ruthlessly. Don't entertain these things at all. And so these ruthless psalms are simply a picture of the way we must deal with the real enemies of the heart of man. Now, let me give you an example, if you like. I want to be helpful in this. Turn to Psalm 43. Here's a very brief psalm, and we'll look at it together, and you can see what I mean, I think, by this. Here's the cry of the psalmist now. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From deceitful and unjust men deliver me. For thou art the God in whom I take refuge. Why hast thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Now, you see, when you read that, 
read a psalm like that, don't think of uh, the enemy as, as people. This is not the neighbors across the back fence, these uh, ungodly people, or the uh, deceitful ones, or the oppression. This isn't your boss. You see, don't uh, personify this in terms of people. The enemies are within you. And think of them that way. And when you do, then you're treating Scripture as it was intended to be treated. These are instructions for us, you see, as Paul tells us. And when we read this, then, you can see how easily this psalm divides itself. The first two verses is a record of attack. And who hasn't felt this way? These things within us, these burning jealousies, these desires to strike back at people and avenge ourselves and get even with them. These are the enemy, and uh, uh, it, it ought to drive us to, like the psalmist, to cry out and say, Lord, defend my cause here against these things. Thou art the God in whom I take refuge. And if there's a sense of forsakenness, it doesn't seem like you're getting through to God right off, you understand what the psalmist means when he says, Why hast thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of this? Uh, but then move to the second verse, uh, the second group, third and fourth verses. You see, there's the appeal, the prayer from the heart. Oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling. See, get hold of some promise out of Scripture, some light, some verse that speaks right to your heart, some truth that you need about the adequacy of Jesus Christ who has already put to death these things on the cross and how you can lay hold of him and then you read then will I go to the altar of God to God my exceeding joy and I will praise thee with the lyre O God my God notice the spelling of that word lyre it's L-Y-R-E that's a, a harp that means your heart your, your own soul will respond in prayer and praise. And then verse 5 is the application. <laughs> you talk, start talking to yourself, you see. Why are you cast down, O my soul? <laughs> and why are you disquieted within me? Look, we've, we've gone through this all together now. We've seen what the answer is. God's adequate. All right, then. Why do you feel the way you are? Why are you going on in this disgruntled mood? Why are you still as unpleasant and is vexatious to everybody around you. Why do you snap at people so? Why are you disquieted? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. Just hang on, that's all. It's going to work out in a few moments. You'll feel a lot better. Just hang on. You see? Now that's, that's using the Psalms the way they were intended to be used. Now just one further word on this. As many of you know, the Psalms also wonderfully reveal the person of Jesus Christ. Remember on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, Jesus said to the two disciples who were so troubled, they said, Do you not understand how it must be that all things that were written in the Moses and the Psalms and the prophets concerning me must be fulfilled? And here in the Psalms you have a great picture of Christ. And I hope you read many of these messianic psalms. They give us uh, inside glimpses into the life of the Lord. 
during some of the very crises of his earthly life that are described in the Gospels. For instance, in Psalm 2, we've already seen, here's a picture of Christ as the crisis of history, the man of destiny, the focus point of all history. God says every every nation, every tribe, every people, every individual will find its value or its lack of value on how it is related to the sun. Kiss the sun, he says, lest you perish. And uh, the picture there is of Christ as the focus point. And then in Psalm 22, you have the, the cries from the cross itself. This is an amazing psalm, taking you right to the cross, and begins with the cry of the Lord Jesus, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And his description of how the people are standing about the foot of the cross, looking on him whom they've pierced, and numbering him his, uh, his, with the transgressors, and how they took his garments and cast lots for them, and uh, how his own heart was broken, and he felt the sense of abandonment of God. A vivid, beautiful description of the, of the prayer of the Lord on the cross, and then following with the prayer of triumph in his resurrection. Psalm 40 is also another of the prayers of the Lord, and is quoted in the New Testament as reflecting uh, the person of Christ. Psalm 45 is one of the most beautiful psalms in the whole Bible, giving us the picture of the beauty of character of Jesus Christ, the beauty of the King. Mine eyes have seen the King in his beauty. And Psalm 72 is a magnificent psalm on the reign of Christ over all the earth, one of the greatest shouts of triumph in the whole of the Bible. Psalm 110 is the great psalm on the deity of Christ and is the one that's quoted in the first chapter of Hebrews as proving the deity of Christ. Psalm 118 is the great psalm of resurrection. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. When, when that which was uh, uh, the stumbling block of men, stumbling stone of men, was taken and made to be the head of the corner on the day of resurrection. Now, all the psalms, therefore, are designed to teach us to do one thing, to worship. Even though these psalms reflect all the emotions of men, they do so in a, in a distinct and definitely important way. That is, they are emotions as seen in relationship to God. Every psalm is written as in the presence of God. And this book, therefore, teaches us how to be honest before God. If we have a problem, tell him. Tell God about it. Don't hide it. Don't cover it over. Don't, especially, don't get pious about it and sanctimonious and try to smooth it over. If you're angry with God, say so. If you're upset about something he's done, tell him so. If you're resentful, bring it out. If you're happy and glad, express that. But it's the great cry for honesty before God. Now, that's what worship is. It's a heart that is honest. As Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, uh, they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. God's looking for that kind to worship him. And as you do this, you'll discover that here's where strength comes. That if you can be honest before God, even about those 
uh, problems and troublesome areas of your life, your wrong moods and attitudes, you'll find here answering grace to meet them. I'm reminded of the old story of a of a converted miser who was always known as a very stingy individual. But after his conversion, one of his neighbors had a very serious loss uh, one day. And when the the former miser heard about it, his immediate reaction was, well, they're in great need, in need of help, in need of food. I'll go to my smokehouse and get a ham and bring it over to them. But on the way to the smokehouse, his old, uh, the old nature, that is the, the, the tempter, began to whisper to him and said, why give them a whole ham? Just give them a half a ham. That'll be enough. And he debated this all the way to the smokehouse, but then he remembered what he'd learned in the presence of God. And he remembered that he had resolved there that by God's grace he would stand against all these evil qualities of his former life when they asserted themselves. And so as the tempter kept whispering, give him half a hand, the old man said finally, look, Satan, if you don't pipe down, I'll give him the whole smokehouse. <laughs> now, you see, that's adequate grace. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that's what the Psalms have been written to bring us to. Shall we bow together in prayer? Our Father, <clears throat> we pray that we may immerse ourselves in this marvelous book of experience and find here that which speaks of our of our own mood, of our own attitude, but also that which answers it in grace. Thank you for this revelation written out, not in mere letters by pen and ink, but in blood and sweat and tears, in heartache and sorrow, in happiness and in joy, through the lives of men and women like ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.